0: It, it drove an evolutionary process in my design work to provide a, just like a gun, uh, it has to be safe, but it has to work. The same thing with the knife, it has to be safe for the individual, but it has to work.
1: Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Baloo Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou. And boy, do we have an exciting guest lined up for you today. This gentleman is one of the men I admire the most, both as a businessman and as a true champion of freedom, and American patriot. He is the creator of the Tactical Folding Knife and he is one of the most iconic figures in the knife making and cutlery industry. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Ernest Emerson. Welcome to the show, Ernie. <laughs> oh,
0: holy smokes. <laughs> I'm, my head's getting too big for my hat, brother. <laughs> well, Thank you, you very, very much. Well, I told to you it'd be a colorful
1: intro. <laughs> so. <laughs> So well, I hope I can live up to some of those. Oh platitudes. man! Well, that, there you go. That's that's what you got to do. Now that's what you got to do is you got to live up to it. So listen, I'm a huge fan sure. of you, of your company, of your podcast. You make some of the most incredible uh, knives on the face of the planet. I love the the design work that goes into everything you do. I mean, your T-shirts. I bought seven Emerson T-shirts. I normally don't buy T-shirts from companies to, to basically become a walking billboard for them, paying them for the privilege of advertising their products. But I've done that in in your case because the designs are absolutely so fantastic, and your knives are some of the best darn hard-use folding knives out there. My favorite are your, are your collaborations with uh, Colonel Grossman, and his sheepdog knife yes, and gun sir. company those are some really fantastic knives and and I'm I'm just a huge huge fan but my listener my listener is a business person these are people that in my opinion and I believe that you believe this also they are the backbone of what makes our society and our civilization great they're the people who've got the courage to go out there and pursue a dream and they listen to this show because they want to learn from you as our guest expert but before they can really truly open their 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 hearts to you, open their ears and, and, and sit down and take detailed notes. They got to get to know you. They got to understand what your backstory is. So tell us your backstory. How'd you get to be the great
0: Ernie Emerson? Well, thank you again for that. Uh, and, and I agree that the businessman, the guy who gets up every morning and goes to work and the sleet and the snow and all of that stuff, they are the blood that runs through the veins of both of our countries. And without them, uh, we wouldn't have anything. So, Anyway, on to my backstory. Well, I grew up in northern Wisconsin, uh, was raised on a dairy farm. Uh, quite literally, I grew up in a log cabin that was built by my grandfather for my parents as their uh, wedding gift for $42. Wow. And the logs were cut from the land where the cabin was. So uh, I'm not trying to say I'm I'm Abe Lincoln or, or Davy Crockett or anything like that, but I, I like to start with that because it's to me a a, an example that you don't you can come from basically not too much i i I never wanted for anything let's just say that but you can come from a, a humble beginning and go on to uh to be successful so you know as a result of living in northern wisconsin and working and living on the farm and all that this is a dairy farm 80 acres uh, we milk sixty head of cow every morning and night. You really learn how to how to work, and you learn discipline, and you learn tools. And because on a dairy farm, and there's a lot of them up in Canada, believe me. Yeah. Uh, y- if something goes wrong or breaks or something happens to the animals, it's you and you alone that have to take care of the problem. Whether that's you know building something, making something, fixing something, whatever. Uh, and so I think when you talked about the designs and that of the knives, I build tools, and for me, maybe because I have that, I guess, background, if you will, uh, it, a tool is either a good tool or it's or it's no tool. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that you can't use things that aren't uh, 100% perfect all the time, because you can improvise and and make do, but. You really learn what's a good hammer and what isn't, and what's sure. a good saw, and and all of those. What's a good axe and what's a good knife? So, with that background, uh, you know, I never looked at the knives that I was making as anything more than a tool. They're not art. They're not pretty, if you will. But there must be a lot of people out there that. You know, once they pick them up, they, they got it. And they feel the same way I do about uh, their stuff, whether it's a gun or a, or a, or a saw or a knife. And that's, that's really kind of who I am. Um, I'll fast forward quite a bit to why did I actually decide to become a knife maker and that's probably 15 years to 20 years ahead of what I was just talking about. Uh, I was a student at a martial arts school run by two gentlemen, Dan Inosanto and Richard Bustillo, who were uh, proteges of Bruce Lee. Yeah. Uh, at the time in the in the 70s, they were one of the only full contact fighting schools that existed. This is pre pre UFC and everything else. And they were both Filipino. And of course the Filipinos have an affinity for edge weapons. And one of them was the ballet song, the butterfly knife. Yep. And at the time I could not afford to buy one cause they were over a hundred dollars. And, uh, so I asked Richard Bastillo, one of the instructors, if I could borrow his knife, take it home and see if I could make one. And again, you know, shade tree mechanic slash carpenter slash whatever, I was able to put one together with a drill and uh, and a grinder and a, and a propane torch and made a workable ballet song. Brought it back, gave him his knife. He looked at it. And he said, well, and he kind of laughed. He says, it's not good, but it'll do. And I said, okay, that's all I needed was was that. And then I found out there were several other guys in the In my school, who were also starving students, if you will. And they came to me and said, Hey, man, could you make me one of those? And I said, Hey, if you pay for the aluminum and the piece of 01 tool steel, I'll make you one. And those were my first knives. I still have a couple of them. I have my very first knife. And so that started me on my career. Then the next bump came when my wife and I went to, uh, a big gun show out in California that had, uh, it had over six miles of aisles. And we walked into one of the big pavilions and it was the knife makers pavilion. And there was, uh, Michael Walker and Mel Pardue and several other knife makers there. And I was like, what in the heck is this? And I talked to Mel Pardue and I said, what do you do? And he goes, I make knives. And I go, well, what's your real job? And he goes, no, this is what I do. I make knives. And from that point forward, that's what I decided I wanted to do also. So that's the nutshell story right
1: there, buddy. That's an amazing story, man. So Mel Pardue, man, that guy's a legend.
0: He is a legend. He's, he helped me a lot in the very beginning. I'll tell you that. I, I think his ear got sore from the, picking up that <laughs> damn phone when I was calling him. <laughs>
1: That's amazing. Okay. So you made some knives for some people and you, you were inspired by Mel Pardue and, and folks like him to, to become a full time knife maker. And I think that's fantastic. I'll, I'll tell you uh, one of my goals uh, on my bucket list is to make a knife. Uh, I am not someone who's been mechanically inclined or gone out there and made stuff, but I am so drawn to making something. So I'm going to do it before I pass on from this planet. So you did this and you decided I'm going to become a full time knife maker. So what happened after that? How did you actually well, get to the point where you were able to do this full time, as it were?
0: What happened was uh, I was also, uh, again, because of, there's a lot of time lags in this story, uh, I was also a prototype machinist and and then became a tool and die maker. I was in an apprenticeship program for a company called Hughes Aircraft, which was a big uh, aerospace company at the time. Sure. Howard Hughes' so, company, right? Yeah, that was that was Howard Hughes. In fact, there was a couple guys there who had actually met him uh, back in the day. I was wow. there in the 70s and, and 80s. But anyway, because I then had additional skills, which were machining and grinding and working on the lathes and all of that good stuff, um, that was at the same time that I had gone to that gun show with my wife. And I thought, wow, these are just parts. Uh, They just end up looking – they have a pointy end and a sharp edge on them when they're finished. Uh, I make parts for uh, satellites that have, you know, tolerances down into the one ten-thousandth of an inch. Uh, I think I could make some of these knives. So I started making them part-time while I was still working. And that went on for about four or five years, and I I really – Don't know what the secret was, why my work kind of caught on, uh, except that I actually was at a knife show as a part-time maker, bringing a few knives to put on the table, and I was approached by three individuals who had long hair and scraggly beards and all that, and they told me that they were, and if you can see what I'm saying, it has air quotes around it, they were underwater welders, quote unquote. And I said, okay, that's a cool job. And they said, uh, we were wondering if you could make some knives for us that we could use in a real harsh environment, and underwater, and with gloves on, and all of these things that they were talking about. And so I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. And so I started working on some designs that they had given me, a, you know, rough ideas about what this tool should be able to do, et cetera. And we went back and forth with a bunch of different designs, and I. I liked a particular knife maker who became a friend of mine named Phil Hartsfield, and he had a knife that was called a chisel grind, which meant it was ground like a chisel. One, the edge was ground on one side only, the backside of the, as you know, with a chisel, uh, there's a bevel on the front and the backside is flat. Well, this knife uh, had that same um, configuration and it made the knife very, very strong, very easy to sharpen, and it was also we found able to penetrate uh, a, n- a number of different uh, materials. And after about a year of going back and forth, because the guys would come up, I'm I'm close to Coronado, uh, California. And although these guys, I, I found out later, they were East Coast guys. Uh, they were back and forth to the West Coast and all that. Uh, after about a year, they came and they said, Ernie, we haven't really been forthright with you. Uh, we we now realize, in their words, you're good wood. Uh, we're with the uh, United States Navy SEAL team, and it turned out to be uh, SEAL Team 6. Wow. And so, yeah, so I started making knives uh, for those guys. And I I think it's obvious because as much as I admired their them and their persona and their skills and everything else. Um, I think a lot of other people also admired them because I I found out that, uh, the guy in Kansas, uh, wants to carry a knife, the Navy SEALs carry. And I think that's probably the, that was the tipping point, if you will. And that brought me to the forefront of my career. Well, I'll tell you, that's, that's incredible.
1: SEAL team (laughs) six that wasn't Richard Marcinko, the fellow who put that team
0: together originally, Yeah, Uh, and uh, I had the distinct honor and privilege of becoming a pretty good friend of his uh, over time and uh, got to the point. uh, Dick was at that time mustering out uh, and everything, but, uh, you know, that was a time when basically a lot of people didn't even know there was a SEAL Team 6. Yeah. And uh, it was a cooler than cool thing, if you will, for me because I got a chance to go down to Coronado basically whenever I wanted, go in, you know— watch what was going on down there, the training, et cetera. I became really close friends with a, um, and a gentleman named Dennis Chalker, who was, uh, Denny, who was the, uh, he ran the entire BUDS training program. He was the command master chief of the, of the, uh, base. Uh, and so we became very close friends and I had like an open invitation to come down there whenever I wanted. So I was like a grown up boy scout. Jesus, man.
1: Out. I just I, I'm so jealous. <laughs> I, I want to do something like that. That sounds like a fun. myself. <laughs> That's awesome. That's totally awesome. Yeah, I read a lot of uh Dick Marcinko's books. You know, uh he he is he wrote some uh nonfiction books, then he wrote a bunch of fiction books which were fictionalized uh um, stories of his exploits, and um, one of the folks who did a book review said, uh, uh, "Marcinko makes Arnold Schwarzenegger look like little Lord Fauntleroy." You know that that British Lord <laughs> character. <laughs> I'm going, man, that's hilarious. <laughs> he, 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 you know, I just would love to see. Um, Marcinko get out there and make some speeches out there in today's environment because you know he'd be politically incorrect and I just would love to oh, see yes. if there'd be a single social justice warrior type who'd have the, the gonads to be able to to go after Marcinko because I don't think that person would do it because <laughs> Marcinko no. would just say that was a big mistake and that's all he'd say yeah. on social media and then you, you, you'd probably hear about it. what happened to that guy that guy disappeared <laughs> 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 I
0: mean well, I'll give you a quick little story. I was at, I was working with some guys, and we were doing actually kind of not real bodyguarding, but we were there to make sure there was order because his book signings would be l- literally four and five hours long, and he would stay. If the store closed at nine, we'd still be in there at eleven o'clock. Because he said, if they're in line, they get through the door, so leave the door open. I'm signing their books, and I remember I was there one time, and two nuns, fully dressed in their habits, stepped up to his table. He looked up. And he looked at him and he said, What the F are you doing here? And the nun, one nun looked at the other one. She goes, She put her hand over her mouth and she goes, He really does talk like that. <laughs> and I was <would> standing <laughs> there going, Yes, he he really does talk like that. Nun or Navy SEAL, doesn't matter. <laughs>
1: That's funny, man. That's funny. Yeah, he's, uh, I really enjoyed his books. They're fantastic.
0: Yeah. He's, he's terrific. Uh, it's, he's it's a lot of, took a lot of flack, but it, SEAL Team 6 would not have existed uh, or gotten off the ground if he hadn't been at the helm from the very beginning. I'll say that. Yeah, you know, it's um,
1: uh, – I've got a a friend. He's actually uh, a client in one of my programs uh, that I run for folks for thought leadership and – he he's a businessman, but I have him in the program as uh, as our, our our charity member, so we don't charge mm-hmm. him uh, or his organization for being there. He runs something called American Dream
0: University. Have you heard of them? Oh for God's sakes, I absolutely have heard of it. Patch Baker is is one of our good friends and uh he's involved in american dream university oh that's phenomenal so the uh, my my guy is um phil randazzo i've had him
1: on my show as well great great guy i'm going to have him back on the show so last night i had the privilege of being invited Uh, as a special guest for one of the programs they're doing for veterans. And uh, there was a veteran who was doing something around overcoming, you know, physical injury and stress-related injury. And he said, hey, come on and have a listen. I said, sure, I'd I'd be honored to. And um, you just listen to these folks. These are the folks who are the sharp tip of the spear. These are the folks who put their lives on the line for freedom, not just in the United States, but for the entire free world. Without them, Canada wouldn't be free. Western Europe wouldn't be free. And as far as i know, Concerned guys like them, guys like the SEAL team, guys, guys like Marcinko, these are the people that deserve everything we can give them. Nothing we give them is too much. In fact, we can never repay the debt that these folks have had us incur with what they've done to help keep us free. So thank you for what you do and for creating weapons to allow these people to keep us free and safe,
0: man. So kudos, brother. I'm not... I just make tools. That's all. Yeah. Those guys are the, they're the users. Let's say that. Yeah, they are the users. No question. But your tools
1: are the real deal, right? I mean, let's face well, they it. They are like, they you know, are. they're, they're, I, I, I'm holding my sheepdog in my hand here. And it's, uh you know, it is, um, it, it just falls shut. It's, it's beautiful, right? It's, it's sharp as all get out. Like I'm, I'm real careful in handling this thing. This is not a toy by any means. And, um, you know, it's, uh, the, the handles are like this grippy G10. So it's, you know, there's no way this, this tool would ever fall out of my hand if I had a good grip on it. Right. And the way that you've designed it, you know, there's a a nice little finger choil here. So when I grip this, even if I had to use this in a, you know, in, in a rough situation, right, this wouldn't be one of those knives that would slip and have me cut myself. So I really appreciate the way that you design knives. It's, it's just wonderful.
0: Well, can I go into that for just a second? Oh, or please. Two? That's why I brought okay. it up. <laughs> <laughs> when I said I was at that school with, uh, Danny Inasano and Richard Basillo, it's because the, the true passion in my life, the, the really who I am is I'm a fighter. I always have been a fighter, uh, I'm one of those, I always wondered what's wrong with me. And then I finally realized it's like, it's just who I am. I'm, I'm a fighter. I'm Irish. I don't know if that's part of being an Irishman or not. I do like whiskey, I got to admit. <laughs> but I love to fight. And I so I pursued the pursuit of learning how to fight better and better my entire life. And I actually, I believe one of the reasons that my knives fill their role so well, and that it sounds braggadocious, but it's it's a fact, is that at the same time, I also became, during that whole time when I was mentioning Dick and uh, Denny uh, Chalker, and I was also a, a training every single day, three or four hours a day, and, and I became a student at the original Gracie Jiu-Jitsu school and trained with Hoyce and Hickson and, and Horion and all of those guys before the UFC. So I was I had made that evolutionary step also, but what happened was those same Navy SEALs uh, asked me to come in and run a hand-to-hand combat and edge weapons program for a company that was called GSGI, uh, Global Studies Group Incorporated, a real benign name, if you will. Sure. And so I started running that program, and I ended up teaching uh, with them for around 10 years. I was a lead hand-to-hand combat instructor which led me to be an instructor at Blackwater, Gunsight. It's a whole list and litany of different police departments and FBI and alphabet government agencies and all of that good stuff. And because of my interaction with all of those people from that tactical world, uh, it became very evident to me very, very early on that most tools, edge weapons especially, were not designed for an environment when everything can go wrong uh, every time. Yeah. And so it it drove an evolutionary process in my design work to provide a, just like a gun, uh, it has to be safe, but it has to work. The same thing with the knife. It has to be safe for the individual, but it has to work. And, and I'm not talking about you know, you're taking sentries down and all that. 99% of the time that a knife is used, it's used in an emergency situation, or it's just used as a very hard-use tool to to cut something open, or cut something out, or whatever. But when you need a knife, no other no other weapon will fill that that role. And so that drove that process to where. And I'm glad you mentioned the choil, and your your hand isn't going to slip forward, and things like that, because that's one of those things. If you look at uh, and I don't want to, I'm not ragging on them because I used to carry one. I loved it a lot. Let's look at the buck folding knife. A lot of guys, yeah, carried the buck yeah, a lot of police officers. I think it was the buck 110 folder. Uh, a lot of police officers carried them, but the thing is there's no choil on it. And when you're cutting in, someone out in an emergency situation of a, of a crash vehicle or a down helo or something like that, uh, you s- do stand the risk of running into something and having your hand slip forward. So that's a very obvious Yeah, thing. that's a real thing, and it's not fun when it happens. Yeah. <laughs> and unless you know that, I mean, I've again, uh, a lot of guys make knives, but you can t- I can tell immediately if these guys have ever had to really use a knife just by looking at it. And that's just part of my experiential process. So...
1: I'll tell you, I really like the way that you design knives because it's obvious that um, you're someone who's used the knife, right? There's not a lot of designers that I can say that about. So I've interviewed quite a few knife folks uh, on my podcast, right? It's not a knife podcast, but I just love knives so much. I love bringing folks like you on. It's a a sneaky way of me getting to meet some of the people I admire and I consider to be business heroes. So it's cool for me.
0: They're great guys, believe me. It's a great community. It is. So,
1: uh, you know, Curtis Siavito from Spartan Blades? Uh, Yes, I do. I know him fairly well. He's a good, he's a good man. I I, I got to interview he's him. He's
0: piece of work too.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So he's got some really nicely designed knives, like the fixed blade knives that he has, right? There's one that he had that was designed with Bill Harsey. Love to get Bill Harsey on my show sometime, I'll tell you. But Another good guy. Yeah, yeah, he's, he seems like a fantastic guy. So I've, I've got a couple of Harseys, one that was that he designed for Chris Reeve knives and the, the one that he designed for, for Curtis and Spartan. The Defensa, that Defensa is such a beautifully designed fixed blade. I was just carrying that thing, my man. This is light, but it's got a nice finger choil in it. You can cut things with it really easily. It's not awkward. It it, it fits very naturally into the hand, and I just go... These guys obviously have used knives when they've designed them. There have been some other folks who've designed knives, especially folks, you know, that are, that are across, uh, you know, in the Far East that are, that are designing knives. Those guys haven't necessarily used the knives. They've maybe copied uh, and cloned some of the American designs uh oh, and big time. They, they're not Pretty as fun. good and and you know yeah. I, I i
0: own a few well, teacher like experience
1: yeah yeah i own a few knives yep. from that part of the world but the majority of my knives are made in the usa and that's where i like them now there's a canadian knife maker and I've, i actually interviewed him on my show grimsmo knives john john and eric grimsmo they're good guys that. too yes it's, yep. it's a nice knife. It's a, it's a, it's a interesting looking knife to say the least, and it's really well designed and whatnot, but it's, you, you know, it's, it's, it's beautiful and I love it and it cuts really well. It falls shut. It's, it's, it's really well thought out and well designed, but you know, would I want to take it into a combat situation? Probably not. Probably not.
0: Well, you know, it's funny. You, you, you touched on something that I think of a lot and what it is, is this, if I could make a knife with the best materials that exist on the planet Earth. And I mean, if if we could invent something that was diamond hard and never got dull and, uh, you know, handles that could never be broken and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if it wasn't a good design, it's still going to be a bad knife. So you have to start with the design, the design. I could make a, a I could make a very usable, good knife with poor materials if it's a good design out of the gate. Now, when you when you have a good design and you use you, you use state of the art materials, the latest good stuff, because there's a lot of there's a lot of hype out there about super steels and super amp materials and all that. But if you make a good design with good materials, you end up with a great knife. And that's that's just a fact. Yeah,
1: no, 100%. I mean, this sheepdog is just a fantastic knife. I'm scared to take it out in Canada, you know, because I mean, it's, we Canadians are a little nice, like in the city of Toronto, there's actually no laws against carrying a knife. There is a law against concealing a knife. So if you're going to carry a knife in the city of Toronto, it needs to be visible. If it's concealed, you're in trouble. Yeah. Um, we, we
0: have similar laws in a lot of places here in the United States too. Some are wide open, do whatever you want. Others have a lot of those kind of nuanced uh, uh, restrictions. So you got to yeah. be careful where you're at and you, what you, you have.
1: Really do. In Toronto, there's not a blade length restriction. Yeah. And that, that blew me away. So um, – I can actually carry a sword in the city of Toronto as long as it's open carry. It's legal for
0: me to carry a sword. Same thing here in in California. There's no restriction on blade length, and and we have crazy laws about everything. And uh, as long as it's exposed, so you know, people are like, "How? What's the blade length?" You know, and I said, "There is none. You can carry a." samurai sword as long as you strap it to your leg <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's hilarious that blows me away <laughs> do that by the way
1: yeah man that's crazy that's crazy but um it it is such a well-designed knife i love the fact that the handles are as grippy as they are and uh this thing cuts like you wouldn't believe and that that is what makes this a fantastic knife and i, I i'm looking to buy some more emerson knives like i want to buy the huck uh i think that would be a fantastic knife it's sold out from my favorite uh canadian dealers of emerson knives these days i think
0: so, it's sold out here too actually yeah <laughs> sorry <laughs> it's all good
1: <laughs> and i wanted to also i noticed on your website for a while you had a knife that was made with cherry wood from george washington's estate and i thought to myself man i i gotta get me that knife because i'm a huge fan of the first president's i think he's the greatest yeah. leader in world history and I just, I just love that you come up with, with things like this. And how did well, you get a hold of that wood? Tell us, tell us about that.
0: That was a lucky thing. Uh, I have a friend who lives back in the D.C. area, and he has a cabin on the Potomac that happens to be on one of George Washington's original farms. I think it's farm number seven on the plat. And I, I, I got to correct you. It wasn't cherry wood. It was oak, but it was an oak that was alive and growing at the time of the uh, george washington's presidency and he came he said uh, i was talking to him on the phone one day and he goes yeah i gotta go to the cabin because i gotta cut a, a big oak tree uh went down across my driveway and he goes it's a shame because that damn thing's almost 300 plus years old and it was alive during the time of the of george washington when the country was starting, And I was like, what are you going to do with it? And he goes, I'm cutting it up for firewood. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't do that. <laughs> uh, I got to get some of that. And so he shipped me a whole bunch of firewood because <laughs> uh, they were just cut pieces about, you know, 24 inches long. And uh, we had the wood treated. It's it's so old that most of the uh, wood was what they call spalted, which means that there's a uh, bacteria or a mold or something a, of whatever that gets into the wood and uh, gives it special uh, colors and grain effect and all that. And so I was able to get enough of that to make several runs of a knife that we called the Patriot. Yeah. And it came right from George Washington's farm and we have the map and I have the exact spot. When you buy one of those knives, you get the map and the exact spot on the farm where that tree actually existed so it's a that's fun amazing.
1: project
0: do you have any left because if you do i'll uh, i'd love to buy one <laughs> but <laughs> i have some of the wood left and i've got to i've got to get to finishing those up uh, you know it's kind of a secret but because it's wood that it has to be there's so much work that goes on at that bit and and god love them i got a great crew here but when it comes to stuff like that that's my baili- bailiwick and sure. I, i'm the guy who has to finish those and shape them and get them done so they're again. They're a custom knife. I don't grind the blade on those myself because I, we'd never have them. But all those handles are basically handmade by me, so it's wow. it's a labor of love. But I. I love it. Uh, I love working with wood. And uh, because of the history of that, uh, it, it was a fun project. But that's why there aren't so many of them out there.
1: I know, man. I, it was on your site for about a week and it was sold out. <laughs> I remember seeing that. And I'm like, darn, I should have ordered one. I was just at the time, I was worried about getting it across the border, but we'll figure something like that. But listen, if you're going to make any more, please put me down for one. i love one. Well, uh, let's we can talk. Let's just say that. All right. Sounds great. <laughs> Sounds great. Sounds great. Okay. So you've, you've been doing this work you've got the seals that loved your stuff and the company took off so so let's let's go back into into your in your origin story there so once once the seals were saying hey we love these knives we want more of them and more people started wanting to buy them where did your thinking around knife making evolve from there
0: well I do remember one thing that's kind of a highlight of my career, and that was the day that I came home and said to my wife, and I had a very good job because, you know, the aerospace industry paid very well. We had every benefit known to man, everything, and savings plans and all that good stuff. And I remember coming home and saying, honey, uh, I want to quit my job and I want to make knives full time. <laughs> <And laughs> she, like, <laughs> you know, she was like, what, what? And so we sat down, we had some long conversations and she said, well, if this is, if this is truly what you want to do, um, I know, I know that you will give it your best effort. And she said, let's give it a try because she's also one of those people that, uh, you know, her and I both have the philosophies, like when we're 80 and in our wheelchairs, we never want to look back on our lives and say, I wish I would have done this, or I should have done that. We want to, we want to fail as much as we want to succeed, but we want to have the experience of trying all of these cool things that, you know, that you do. And so she said, let's give it a shot. And, and we, we took off running and and we never, ever looked back. And uh, that's led to just a wonderful life. It allows me to do the things that, that I would do, even if I wasn't getting paid for it. In fact, the way I describe it is people have said, Hey, Ernie, when are you going to retire? And I, and I, I just tell them, look, you don't understand something. I haven't worked a day in my life for the last 35 years. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Cause it's not work. It's, it's what I love. So, you know, with that attitude, uh, we charge forward. It's a beautiful attitude. You know, I, I had the good
1: fortune uh, in the, in the mid 2000s to get to see Donald Trump speak at a um, network marketing convention. I was part of a network marketing company called ACN and uh, yes. he, he came and he spoke at ACN convention several times. I got to see him speak three or four times and a mm-hmm. few of the things he said really stuck with me. One of them was, you- got to love what you do. You got to find what you love to do and then throw yourself into it wholeheartedly. And if you do that, then you'll have other opportunities open up for you, but you got to find that one thing you love and you just got to go for it. And you know, that really stuck with me. Um, and it was really, really powerful. And a lot of people forget before he ran for president, Donald Trump was actually, in addition to being a fantastic businessman, he was he was a motivational speaker. He would go and speak at big events and he'd inspire people. And, and he was a great motivational speaker. Uh, and, and it really is wonderful to see that message be reaffirmed for me by you and by so many other people that I've gotten to interview in these podcast sessions that I've done. So that's wonderful. And it it, it makes me inspired to go out and do more of the things that I love. Cause I'll tell you, I'd love to make a knife. I, I don't know that I'm ever going to be a knife maker, but I'd love to make one knife for me. I think that would be <laughs> a fun
0: project to take on. Well, I'm going to give you a bit of advice that was given to me Sure. If you don't want to make your thousandth knife, don't make your first knife. (laughs) Michael Walker told me that, and I was like, "What the hell are you talking about?" And here I am, way past a thousand. (laughs) But you know what? You've touched on something too when you talk about motivation and inspiration. I, I have filled my life with those inspirational figures, whether they're historical figures or family members or people that I ran into or people that I read about I truly believe that you need that you need to to be able to see someone who struggled or got there if you will to to I guess give you that kick in the rear end to, that you can do that too because honest one of the things that I've always that I always joke about when I tell people about assembling a team and all that and I I tell him, look, here's the deal. If I walk into the room where I've got my team assembled and I'm the dumbest guy in the room, then I know I've picked the right team. And I've approached everything that I do with the attitude that, you know, I've su- I've got something to learn from these people, whether it's motivation or technical knowledge or whatever it was. So I've just been an open book my entire life. And uh, slowly the pages are getting filled. <laughs> That's awesome. That's There's still awesome. a lot of blank pages left. <laughs>
1: Man, are you kidding me? I've seen some of your workout videos on YouTube, man. You're 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 a pretty fit dude. I say you're going to be making knives well into your nineties.
0: Well, that might be. Which again, that's that's part of the the training and all that is part of a program of life that that I subscribe to. And and one of the things that I've, if if you don't mind, I I can describe a couple of the things that please I believe were the probably the biggest factors in me getting to whatever degree of success that I enjoy at this point. Um, I truly believe that there are universal principles that go across the board into every aspect of life, whether it's business or personal or marriage or raising children. And if if you're curious enough to find out what those principles are, and then, not fight them, but actually accept them and embrace them. Then you can start to shape your future, uh, just like you're molding a piece of clay. Uh, I remember Michelangelo said, "Hey, I, I just carved the, I just carved the marble away until the angel uh, broke free," and it's kind of like that. Uh, do you mind me going into that a little bit? Yeah, man. Please listen. The more you
1: share, the happier I am because I love learning from you. Like you, I love learning from the people I have on the show. So please
0: share away. Well, I'll try and relate a few examples that maybe some of us can also relate to. Uh, I, I was a, an athlete my entire life, so I, I played all kinds of sports and did all kinds of training and all that. So that's that's my background experience. That's my my environment that that I learned a lot of these things from. And so if you take, for example, uh, a tennis player uh, who's at, at a, and let's talk about people that are at a world level, world-class level, a tennis player on the court, he, he has to be focused. He cannot be thinking about the movie he saw last night, or is my girlfriend mad at me? Or what am I going to eat tonight? Because the minute that happens, he's going to lose. And so he has to be able to maintain that focus, the discipline of the mind, if you will, and in accordance with the discipline of the body, uh, to the exclusion of all other things. Because when that tennis ball is coming 100 miles an hour across the uh, the net, you, you, there's not a lot of reaction time. If you're thinking about something else, you're gonna you're gonna miss it. Uh, same thing with let's say a downhill skier. Uh, if they think about any of those things while they're traveling down the hill at 75, 80 miles an hour, and they lose an edge or catch an edge, uh, they're toast. Same thing, for example, uh, for a team of operators that's going to go through a a room where they know there's bad guys on the other side. You have to be focused. You have to be spot on. And as the Brits, uh, some of the SAS guys that I've worked with over the years, they call it the switch. You have to be switched on. And that's all that matters at that moment. And in order to have that type of focus, you have to have discipline. And that focus comes directly from your ability to embrace self-discipline. And that's one of the principles that I believe uh, goes across the board is the principle of discipline. It's, and the thing about discipline is it's a learned behavior. Everything that I that I talk about or I try to mentor people in is something that can be learned. Uh, if I were to sit, try and teach you to be an NBA player, uh, that would be an impossibility because I, I believe you're probably about 5'10 or 5'11 maybe. Yep. Uh, it would be tough to compete in the land of the giants. So I'm not going to try and teach you to do something that, that can't be done. And that's not to say that some smaller guys played in the NBA because they certainly have, but they, they, had a, they had an exceptional set of skills, let's say that. But everything that I try and mentor people in, especially in business and or uh, personal life, is it can be learned. Everything from leadership to, to uh, self-discipline to all of the things I'm going to maybe brief on here, uh, they can be learned because no one's born Einstein wasn't born knowing physics. Mozart wasn't born knowing how to play the piano. Those things are learned. Theoretically, you could learn to play the piano like Mozart. Uh, it's just a matter of you, like you said, finding that thing and focusing on it and making that your passion. One of the things that comes from, I guess, this idea of universal principles is also, uh, I describe it as the principle of habits. And a habit you know, we all think of, you know, that they just happen. Habits are, they don't care if they're good or bad and they don't just happen. They're also a learned behavior. In fact, Aristotle, you know, I guess it's, it's a misattributation. Actually, the guy who actually said this quote was a guy named William Durant, who was uh, an English philosopher, but he said, uh, who, who we are is a, is a result of what we do, what, you know, what we do. Do continually is who we are, and therefore excellence is not an act but a habit. So if you strive for excellence in all ways at all times, that becomes a habit. So I guess another another example is as a probably the greatest wrestling coach and probably the greatest wrestler that ever lived was a gentleman named Dan Gable, and uh, he said something that was similar but more like a wrestler would say it. Uh, if something is necessary, do it every day. If it's not necessary, don't do it at all. And those those kind of bits of wisdom have stuck in my head. I I, I try and live those out and and make those realities for me. So that's that's one of those uh, other uh, universal principles. That we develop habits. Now, the thing is, in life, you're. A direct result of the choices that you make. And if you end up at the end of your life having made uh, more good choices than bad choices, you're probably going to do okay. If you made all good choices, you're going to do, you're going to excel. And uh, a friend of mine one time told me, he said, Ernie, you got to understand something. The world is run by C students. If you can be a B, you're going to do all right. If you can be an A, you're going to do really. Really good, and so, you know, you look at these things and you say, "Wow, those are those are things that I can affect." Uh, and if I can make good choices and choose good habits, I'm going to end up being one of those—at least a B student. I hope in the end, uh, maybe an A uh, would be a, a stretch for me, anyway. But uh, I'm I'm striving for it. And then, I guess another thing that's very important to me is personal responsibility because in order to make good choices and to choose those good habits you have to understand that you're responsible for every choice that you make and that means that you have to be objective in your your view of yourself and brutal and brutally honest and you know know the things that you need to improve on and a lot of people, Nick, they, they don't want to face that. They don't, they don't want to truly look in the mirror and say, what's wrong with me? Where are the things that I can improve there? We want to look in the mirror and print ourselves and our hair looks perfect and our teeth are white and all that good stuff. You know, we don't want to look at the warts and the, and the scars and all that and, and fix those. And I think that that's, again, you know, that's personal responsibility, man. You're, we're, none of us are perfect, but if we strive per, for perfection in all things, we're all going to do well. Again, it, it's it's just, it's personal philosophy of mine to to, to look at those things and uh, try and improve every, every single day. And that in the end leads to that product of discipline. And the reason that I mentioned the sports in a moment—I'm getting real long-winded. Sorry to, to. No, not my, this is great. Keep,
1: keep talking. But, keep talking. People want to hear well, from you, I'm, not from me. Believe me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, careful what you ask for. <laughs> um, one of the things that I think in terms of discipline, when I mentioned the sports, and, and why would I mention that? Because I think that hard physical endeavor. Now, whether that's hard work or. Or, or becoming a Navy SEAL or a Delta Force operator or a United States Marine or whatever. Canadian Special Forces, you name it. One of the things that they do with all of those people is they put them through the most extreme physical test that a human being could ever experience. And training and pain and physical exhaustion. You know, Vince Lombardi, a great coach here in the United States for the Green Bay Packers said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And I can tell you for a fact, that's an absolute true statement because I've been there and and I have been ready to give up. And uh, uh, it's not a good feeling. I I never want to go there again in in my life. And, uh, you know, the ability to work hard, face adversity, and overcome just in physical training, whether it's adding a few uh, extra yards to your run or a few extra pounds uh, on your bench press or whatever it is that you're doing. uh, There's a tremendous goal and reward system going on there. And what it, what it continually does is it continually puts roadblocks in your way and lets you hit those roadblocks and overcome them. And once you start breaking through those roadblocks, you, you, at some point in your life, you realize there are no roadblocks. Nothing can stop me. And once that you've embraced that, which is, I always ask people, who's the toughest SOB that ever walked the planet Earth? And I always get all these answers like, you know, it's this guy or that guy or Mike Tyson or somebody like that. And I go, no, 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 no. The toughest guy who ever walked the face of the earth is a 125-pound Marine just out of boot camp. How can you say that? Because he is the toughest SOB that ever walked the face of the earth. Just ask him. And, you know, that's that's part of that ability to overcome, uh, to never look at something as a brick wall. And if it is a brick wall, I'm going to climb it or I'll knock it down with a sledgehammer, or I'll go through it, or I'll go around it, whatever it happens to be. But if you just keep that mentality stoked and reinforce it by constantly challenging yourself uh, against the odds or doing something that you th- think you can't do uh, and, and getting there, uh, you're going to Eventually, it will become that habit. It'll become the habit of discipline, the habit of never giving up, the habit that you can't ever be stopped, that there's the only person who ever holds you back, the only one is yourself. And if you can realize that and look in that mirror and go, okay, where are my weaknesses? Because guess what? The, that, who's the most dangerous opponent that a human being will ever face in their life? It's himself because we know our weaknesses. We know where we're strong. We know where we're weak. We know what our fears are. We know what our deepest apprehensions are. So we if we can overcome that opponent, wow. Now you're on the Yellowbrook Road and all you gotta do is keep trucking until you end up in Oz. Anyway. <laughs> that's that's Emerson Knives in a in a big nutshell right there. I'll tell you, that's 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 deep wisdom. I um, <laughs> uh, so
1: Ernie, one thing that I wanna, on. No man, I, I I loved it. I loved every second of it. I took detailed notes. I took a page note, a page worth of notes. Um, <laughs> so, Ernie, I'm a reader and I'm a writer. You know, I mm-hmm. I uh, it's always been my childhood dream to to write books and publish them. and and, and for many years I. I, I moved away from that dream and I was in corporate. But right now, I've done some some writing. I've self published a couple books, and mm-hmm. I I read a ton. I just finished my hundredth book of the year, and I mean read, not listened to. Yep. Uh And you know, I'm proud of that. That you know. That's very good. It's fantastic. That's a book every couple of days, man. Yeah, pretty close, pretty close, pretty yeah. close. And my goal is uh, to do at least thirty more bef- between now and the end of December. You know. But I wrote a book uh, a few years back called Finish Line Thinking, How to Think and Win Like a Champion. I'd I'd love to send you an autographed Mm -hmm. copy of it. I think you'd enjoy it based on what you just shared with me. I would love it, and if you like it, I'll 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 send a bunch for your team over there as well. But I I had the privilege Excellent. of working with a few Olympic gold medal athletes. My my better half, my uh, she is a three time Guinness World Record holder. She ran twelve hours on a treadmill three times. Think about that. That's pretty crazy. She she's kind of like yeah. girly, a girly David Goggins. I like to call her. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Uh,
0: That's outstanding.
1: No, it really is. It really is. And um, these two fellas uh, taught me a lot about the mindset of a champion, right? And, you know, it it always made me think, what is it that makes a champion a champion? What has one person be a champion and someone else just as talented be an also-ran, right? And – what these guys taught me and what all the research show, is, it, it, it's all based on their mindset. It's all based on how they think. They engage in this concept that I call finish line thinking, right? And, and what that is is the science of how to think and win like a champion. And you just described that to a T, to a T, And inside my book, I outline 13 principles of how to think and win like a champion. Uh, And to me, you know, you've got your own version of those principles. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you ought to put those together in a book or in a series on your podcast because it's really good stuff. And I think people do business with you, with me, because they see something in us that they want a piece of. You know what I mean? I buy Emerson knives because Emerson knives help me get in touch with that warrior within, you know, owning an Emerson knife, wearing an Emerson t-shirt helps me think, Hey man, I'm Nikki Billu. I'm the baddest man on the planet. And how I know that is because only the baddest man on the planet would wear this shirt and carry this knife.
0: <laughs> well, my name's on every single one of those blades, so that's very touching that you say that because that I've always looked at it like you know what you you use something that's that's got my name on it, and it might be in an emergency situation or a life saving situation. I I am there with you, and that otherwise my name wouldn't be on that knife and that's that's the i guess the way that i view that i hope people identify with my stuff is it isn't just the tool it's me i'm there with you i'm fighting a good fight with you i'm helping you i've got your back amen amen it's it, it's a beautiful thing
1: it's a powerful thing you know i got into knife collecting back in 2017 um, mm-hmm. When I was a kid I collected knives back home in Iran. I'm originally from Iran, the Middle East. I'm a Christian from the Middle East. So mm-hmm. I, uh, I'm forever grateful to President Trump for defeating the forces over there who were killing Christians in, yeah. in Iraq and in Syria. So amen to that. Yep. Um, but I saw I, w- I was doing a business course with a fellow by the name of Donald Miller. And Donald Miller wrote a, a book called Blue Like Jazz, which sold a couple million copies. And then he got into the marketing business and he created a program called StoryBrand. He wrote a book about it and whatnot. But he was in a StoryBrand online course. He was talking about the power of a story. And he, he started to talk about Gerber Knives. I didn't know who Gerber Knives was. I thought Gerber was a food company at the time, right? And he, he you know, like, was he talking about baby food? They make knives now? Like, yeah. what's up with that? That's, that's off brand, right? And uh. so he, he said, you know, he saw this ad and he said he went out there and he spent 50 bucks on a knife. And I'm like, like 50 bucks is not a lot to spend on a knife these days. But I stand 65 knives in, <laughs> that'd be one of my cheapest yeah. knives. Right. But oh, he, he said that he like, he, he, he's, you know, he's a self-professed geek, you know, he, he doesn't need a knife, <laughs> right. He's not going to go out there, but Then he showed us this ad that Gerber put together called Hello Trouble. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it is an incredibly powerful ad. I watched that ad, and I went, man, I want to be that kind of man. I am that kind of man. I'm going to go buy me a knife. So I went to I went to our local Canadian Tire, because I knew they carried knives. And they didn't have any Gerber knives, but they had a Buck 110. So I bought my Buck 110. That was my first knife. And then I went to Bass Pro Shops, and I said, okay, I need to go buy a Gerber knife. And the guy goes, you don't want to buy a Gerber knife. He goes, no, why, why not? He says, no, they're better knives than Gerber. I said, but I saw their ad, and it's this cool. And he says, no, no, no. He's, <laughs> and he, he, gives me, he gives me a Benchmade uh and so Mm -hmm. i go okay Uh, you know it looks a lot like the bench made i got was a crooked river it looked a lot like my buck 110 so i bought the bench and then i was hooked i cut myself with 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 the knife you know like i i I, not a super deep cut but a a nice cut i I had a piece of fruit in my hand and went right through the fruit went right through the palm of my hand i'm like damn all right (laughs) so i'm like okay what are some other good knives these are sharp yeah, it was sharp. It was sharp out of the box, let me tell you. So so yep. I went to my buddy at at Brass Pro Shops. And so I said, okay, teach me. What are the good knives? And he says, well, there's a few brands that are good. He said, you know, Benchmade's good. And he said, Emerson's good. Zero Tolerance is good. And then he started to educate me. And he told me a little bit about it. He says, yeah, Emerson was made for Navy SEALs. I was like, well, I want that one. He goes, yeah, everybody wants those. We're sold out. <laughs> like, just like... <laughs> So yeah, I'm like, all right, great. They're sold out. Okay, so I said, okay, what else? He goes, all right. Well, you know, you and I got into collecting. I got into buying, and then um, the Canadian government, in their infinite wisdom, led by our, our 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 prime minister, who I'm not a huge fan of, decided that they wanted to. Uh, put some ridiculous rules on knives coming into the country. So the knives were legal to own in Canada, but they were not legal to bring across the border. So at that point in time, I had to find out who were the dealers who had ways to get the knives in. And I found a couple, and wouldn't you know it, Blades Canada was the only one that had a huge selection of Emerson knives. The other ones had a smaller selection. They were always sold out. You know, and I'm going, so why are the, why is this guy's knives always sold out, man? Like, what's up with that? You know, like, so I bought a bunch of other knives and then, then I, I, um, I got my Sheepdog, and I love this knife. I mean, I love the wave feature, you know, and this one's mm-hmm. a flipper. It, it's got a thumb stud and it's got the wave feature. So there's three ways to deploy this knife. I, I think that's yeah, fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen that on any other knives
0: before. Well, that was, that was one of the things that Dave Grossman uh, and I discussed. And when he called me, he said, Hey, and and I'd met him several times because he would come in and do a motivational talk to uh, all the SEAL teams before they deployed. um, And so I had run across him a number of times. I knew about him. I read all his books and all that. And I got a phone call one day. And he goes, Ernie, this is Colonel, this is Dave Grossman. He calls himself Dave. And I go, really? And he goes, yeah. He goes, Would you guys like to make a knife? I've, I've got some ideas. And I was like, are you kidding me? I said, I played baseball. I, that's like Babe Ruth calling me up and saying, hey man, can I come and teach you how to hit a baseball? <laughs> I was like, holy smokes, this is Dave Grossman. So that's that's a culmination of the things that Dave also has determined are required under high stress environments and things like that. So Go ahead. Sort it. Sort it no, here.
1: no, man. It, it's, it's, it. no, I'm glad you, you shared that with me. I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing I want to, I want to hear. Uh, and, and I know my listeners will too, but I, I got this knife and I thought this has got to be the coolest knife there is because I can deploy this in any one of three ways. And I, and I, and I, I got so enamored with the wave feature. I ripped a couple of my jeans with it, <laughs> you know, just trying to, we've all done that. Yeah. yeah oh, for sure. and, and, I thought to myself at that point in time, you know, I've got a business podcast. I got to start interviewing these knife company founders who are creating these knives that I love. So I I reached out to Curtis from Spartan. I reached out to uh, Anne and and, uh, Tim Reeve from Chris Reeve Knives because Chris isn't around anymore. I reached out to you. I reached out to Greg Medford. Uh, He's a character. And um, Tim Leatherman and John Grimsmo here in Canada. And I've had, I've had all those folks on and I've got you on and I got to tell you, I, I'm tickled pink. It's getting to learn about life and success and knife making from Ernie Emerson It is like as a Canadian getting to learn about hockey from Wayne Gretzky. So I'm
0: excited. <laughs> I got you. I, 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 I'm telling you, there are so many people that have been huge influences in my life that I've just been the luckiest the luckiest guy to be able to have them hopefully a little rub off on me and my, my job now in life is just to share and, and hopefully pass on some of that stuff I didn't come up with anything believe me uh, and I never claim to but a- am I a conduit to keep that those things those thoughts those inspirations, uh, uh, being passed on. Hell yeah. And I'm, I'm up for that. So I I appreciate that compliment. I really, really do.
1: Yeah, you bet, man. You bet. Thank you so much for uh, sharing some of your wisdom with me and my listeners. So, you know, one of the things that I that I love about you is how much of a patriot you are, and how you have gone out of your way to keep making knives in the United States. Talk about why that's been important for you.
0: Well, we America gave me everything that I have. It gave me my opportunities. It gave me the freedom uh, to choose what I want to do. It gave me it, it gave me everything. So there was there was never. Never a moment where, and believe me, we were since the beginning of this company back 25 plus years ago, and, and I've been making knives since 1979, so it just goes back further than that. Uh, I have been approached by every entity on the planet Earth that makes knives outside of the United States, and most of them were from China, Japan, etc. But uh, I have always been. I want to, I want to have, I want to put Americans to work. I want to pay American wages and and I want to be able to say these are 100% made in the USA. That's, that's my, uh, maybe a tiny little payback for what this, this great and wonderful country has provided uh, for me and my family. And it's not just the country, but it's Americans and Canadians and Europeans, the, the, you know, I truly, truly realize, Nikki, you don't need to buy one more knife from me, not ever. You never even needed to buy the first knife from me. You did not. You could have gone to Walmart, and for six ninety five, you could have bought a knife that probably would have done most of the things you'd ever have to have it do. But for whatever reason, you chose to buy some of my knives i I am aware of that. You are not a customer. You are a person who who is allowing me to do the things that I love to do. you're You're putting a house over my family's head. And I think that a lot of companies, not just knife companies, but companies in general, uh, they lose track of that. They lose sight of that. No one needs a Sony TV, but for whatever reason, someone goes and buys one. And and we, I owe everything to the people who don't need an Emerson knife, but for whatever reason, decide to go and buy one. And I'll never forget that. I'll never take it for granted. Man, that's amazing. That gave me goosebumps listening to that. That's awesome. And honestly, that's yeah. the truth.
1: That's the truth. It nope, is the truth. You know, besides food and shelter and water, nobody really needs much else, right? No. Nope. And- Everything else is a choice, so, you know, kudos to you. So can we talk for a minute about the, the cutlery industry? I want to just get some of your thoughts around yeah. where you think the future of this industry is. Uh, you know, I've got some thoughts of my own, but I'd love to hear your thoughts of where the future is going for the industry and and, and and what people in it can do to keep making sure that mm-hmm. people know about the great tools that you, that you make and people keep buying them and using them.
0: Well the The industry is it's it's grown because it's a an evolutionary uh, development, if you will, like everything else. Look, if you think about the cars uh, back, the Model A's and Model T's, all the way up now to you know, you know, the cars that we're driving today, uh, there there was a process that it went through, and one of the things that has happened in the knife industry is when, when we came along, all the knives were under a hundred dollars. And I looked at that and said, you know, we can make a better knife and give people a hundred dollars worth of knife. And one of the things that I looked at was, uh, because I'm, I'm a, because of the environment that I came from being a, a shooter and then being working with all those the Navy teams, because we did all kinds of shooting classes and tactical training and high stakes uh, doing uh, uh, evaluations for uh, different plants and some high stakes protection stuff and all of that good stuff. Guns became a huge part of my. Life and they always were because I grew up had my first uh, BB gun when I was probably six years old and got my first 22 when I was twelve and was hunting in the woods uh, started at twelve with a 3030 so I grew up in that environment so guns were never a foreign object to me and one of the things that uh, I realized with pistols when I became um, more accustomed to using a pistol than a, than a rifle um, was you can take your pistol apart you can clean it you can adjust it you can replace parts you can customize it well at the time that I started making the knives uh you couldn't do that with knives they were held together with rivets or they were glued together or they were um welded together or soldered together and you know you break the tip off your blade (laughs) You're done. I mean, you can still use it, but you know what I'm saying. You can't replace it. You have to go buy a new knife. Sure. And I looked at that. And said, you know what? Here we are. We're going to make a very good knife that gives the customer the value for his money. He's got to be able to take it apart and clean it. He's got to be able to replace parts. He's got to be able to adjust things to fit whatever parameters he's he's de- decided he needs to address. And so we actually were the first company to make the take-apart knife so that you could do all of those things. And uh, that actually, just on a side note, that spawned an entire cottage industry that is now huge, which is, they call it pimping your knife, where mm-hmm. you can put other handles and backspacers and fancy jewel jewelry-type uh, accoutrement uh, on your <laughs> knife and all that. And, and now there's guys that are just fantastic, uh, uh, craftsmen whose only job full-time job is to make parts for uh, Emerson knives. And now it's, you know, this is 25 years ago that this all started up. So now, you know, every company that's out there makes a knife that you can pretty much, they have knives that you can take apart and put back together. So that's, that's part of that evolutionary process. We, we, we did it again because I'm a tool guy and I need to be able to fix my tools if they break or wear. And so that was a natural growth uh, or evolutionary process on of what I would want in a product. Because, again, think about a 1911. Uh, my gosh, uh, you can do all kinds of th- things with it. You can completely revamp that gun from the one that you picked up you know, off the counter and, and took home. Same thing with the AR-15. For gosh sakes, uh, why are they so popular? For a whole bunch of reasons, but a big part of the reason is that you can customize it. There's a companies. There's hundreds of companies now that make thousands of parts that you can plug and play with it. The Jeep. What's so cool about a Jeep? Yeah, it'll off road and four wheel. But the other cool thing is that I can I can buy all kinds of cool stuff to put on that Jeep, change it, customize it, raise it, new fenders, new headlights, new whatever. Uh, it's there's a part of the uh, of the user's psyche that loves to be able to make that thing his own. And so you know that's part of the evolutionary. that's kind of happened with the with the knife companies over the years. Uh, another big step was, Something that was only available to the big companies was the use of NC or computer-controlled uh, uh, milling machines and grinders and things like that. Well, they've come down now in price from $275,000 to you can buy an NC-controlled lathe that you can put in your – or excuse me, a mill that you can put in your garage. You can get one for about six dollars or $7,000. So Wow yeah, what that has allowed to happen is it has allowed the knife makers who w- would be standing there with a Sears and Robot grinder and a, and a hacksaw cutting parts out to be able to do the same thing that the big guys do. And not only do the same thing the big guys do, but actually do more because they can build all kinds of really intricate custom parts because they don't have to make 500 of them they might make five of them and so what that has done is it's the the custom knife makers have become so fluent in being able to bring their designs to fruition and expand on the they can use all the high-tech materials the titaniums and the niobiums and the different types of steel because now they have the machinery available to them to do that and it's pushed the industry forward uh, vis-a-vis the the knife companies, because we have to compete with those guys now, and so it's been the the little guys are now leading the big guys around uh, by a leash, basically. In that, it's forcing us to say, "Hey, you know what? We've got to do all these cool things, uh, also. As long as they're functional, I- I'm good with it." But you know, that's something that's also going on with the knife industry now. You got to say it in the, in the wake of the, what I would call the tactics used by the, the uh, government of China in not recognizing us patents and, uh, all of those good things. Uh, it's, you know, and again, without getting too uh, political about it, they have really, it's been the, the greatest, uh, transfer of knowledge in the history of mankind has been the Chinese, uh, uh absconding with a lot of the U S technologies and all that. And it, they do, they do it with guns and knives and everything too, not just, uh, missiles and airplanes and, and high tech stuff. And sure. so as a result of that, there's been a, there's been a rebound effect in that, Hey, you know what? People want to do business with, with, companies and with individuals that can look them square in the eye and say, I'm not cheating you. I didn't do this by any nefarious means. Uh, These are American made, or this is a Canadian made item, or this is a a German made item, whatever it happens to be. Uh, Those things have become, they've become very important to the customer. So in terms of uh, the knife industry, made in the USA is, is a big deal now. Uh, We've just been, yeah, we've been very fortunate that we were always made in the USA, so we didn't have to do any fancy footwork (laughs) to get that back. Uh, Again, if you look at the, if you do look at the politics of it and the trade uh, sanctions and the high tariffs and things that have been put on China by the US, uh, it has also driven the price up or in some cases dried up the opportunity to have product made over there and so a lot of companies not just the knife companies are now actually forced to bring their stuff back on shore so to speak and build things here in the united states now again good on them i'm all i'm all for that i'm just lucky that we never went offshore so we were yeah, we didn't man. have to do we didn't have to buy any machines or set up any companies or anything we were We were already doing it, and our customers realize it. They they recognized it from the very beginning. And, yeah, do I consider myself a patriot? My blood is red, white, and blue. I'll tell you that right now. Amen. Amen. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show. Uh, I'm the most
1: Americanized Canadian you're ever going to meet. Uh, I think <laughs> I think the the one indispensable nation uh, on the face of the earth is the United States of America. And one of my professors, who was a uh, a Czech man, he was a refugee. Uh, from uh, Czechoslovakia back in the '40s, when uh, they killed Jan Masaryk, the Soviets killed Jan Masaryk, and he, he he moved first to the United States, then to Canada. And there were a number of uh, precursors to the SJWs in, in in one of his classes, and they were just bad mouthing America, and they they were they were I think they were from Europe, they were from Germany or some other country like that. And he just he just lost it one day, and he said, "Listen, you know what?" He looked at one of the students in the eye and he said, you Europeans, all you do is go and badmouth the United States and say the United States is this, the United States is that. And he said, well, tw- you know, imperialist warmonger, all that stuff that they used to say back in the 80s. And he said twice in this century, it was still the 20th century, Europe has dragged the world into war and burned it. In flames, and who had to come and save Europe's butt but the corn huskers from Iowa and Nebraska, the steel workers from Pittsburgh, the garment factory workers from Brooklyn, the cotton pickers from Alabama and Georgia, and the surfers from California? Where would Europe be without the United States today? Where? And I just sat there looking at him and I just stood up and I applauded and I said, bravo, Professor Greger. Because I believe that that's what the United States is. The United States has been a beacon standing for freedom all around the world. People from all over the world Know this. That's why so many people want to come and live in the United States. The United States is the noblest, the most tolerant nation on earth. I mean, Canada is probably pretty tolerant too. But let's face it. You know what? There, these people right now that are that are saying the U.S. is 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 racist, bigoted, imperialist. Are you kidding me? So I'm I'm an Iranian from the Middle East. I'm a Christian from the Middle East. When I was uh, 11 years old, someone threw you couldn't a, be yeah someone you threw couldn't a, be discriminated more against. No, t- <laughs> t- t- tell me about it trust me back home it was insane someone threw a molotov cocktail through our family's uh, living room window with a note on it that said die christians scum the only reason you and i are talking today is cuz it didn't explode right and i come here and these people start saying this i go you guys don't even know what real discrimination is You have no idea. You think that somebody saying no to you means they're discriminating against you because of your background? No, that's not what it means. It probably just means that you, excuse my French, suck at what you do and they didn't want to hire you. So get over yourself, go out there and work on yourself. In fact, the fact that you're a minority gives you an opportunity that the majority race in Canada and the United States no longer gets. And it is what it is, good, bad, or indifferent. And people need to understand that this is the greatest country in the world. And I want to just say, as a Canadian to an American right now, thank you for your country's two and three quarter century commitment to human freedom and being willing to fight, bleed, and die so that people, other people, not just your own people, can be free.
0: Well, we all appreciate that. And you're you're spot on. I, I always tell people... Uh, this uh, it, nowhere is freedom held so dearly as it is in the hands of someone who is not allowed to hold it and uh, we have just become spoiled brats and we don't realize again this is a it's it is an ongoing struggle it, it Everything will conspire to take those freedoms away from every corner. And, you know, again, we, we just need to be vigilant about protecting those freedoms uh, and, and liberties and allowing you—and uh, thank God Canada's is our, our neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I have to say, because i tell you what, if somebody ever really wants to mess with us, uh, those are two big, strong forces of nature that, that are— Willing to stand, ready to to protect this part of the world, and it's it's just one of those things where I think people. It's funny because uh, Nikki, this is something else that that I've learned over the years. When people are in a war zone, there is something that happens, and it's terrible. It's it's god awful. It's the it's hell on earth. But if you talk to people. Some of them will say, I miss, I miss what was going on when we were under attack. Mm. And you think, what are you talking about? Well, what it is is when a lot of those communities, let's say in Bosnia and Czechoslovakia and all of those different places, there was a camaraderie and a spirit between the people that think about the Brits in World War II. They were never as close to each other as they were during the Battle of Britain. Yeah. Because we're all together and we couldn't bitch and complain about your your microaggressions are (laughs) (laughs) what a term. What a term. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you are when you're faced with adversity. Uh, the the spirit of human nature is to help your brother, help your friend, help your neighbor, and uh, it's funny to talk to people that have been in those situations. A lot of times, that is something that you that they will miss for the rest of their lives. Even though, thank God, uh, and, and they will thank God that that they've been removed from that environment. But at the same time, uh, there's something to be said about what happens to the human spirit when you are. When you are in danger, and you pull together, and you know, I, I understand what you're saying. You you know, being a Christian from that environment, give me a break. You know, you guys out here don't have nothing to be pissed about. Not a believe
1: thing. Me. Not a thing. And, and
0: I always one other thing, Nikki, that I always think about in in my own terms is, no matter how bad, and, and honest, I'm not. Nobody's trying to. Well, I hope nobody's trying to kill me, but no matter how bad. I think I've got it there's people that have it a hundred times worse a hundred times worse and if you think of that you can try and put it into perspective and say you know what I don't have a lot to complain about no and way. if you want to use the word, you're just bitching yeah amen 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 so
1: uh, you know B- before we <laughs> before we wrap up, I'll, I'll share with you a couple sure. of my thoughts about the cutlery industry, and 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 then yes, let's sir. let's move it. So, I believe the cutlery industry in the United States um, can be poised for explosive growth, and I'll tell you why. I, I believe it's about a fifth the size that it ought to be right now, and let mm-hmm. me tell you why I say that. We live in a time where there are a couple of very distinct trends happening in society. Trend number 1 is men today are, are very lost and a lot of men don't have a sense of what it is to be a, a good man. I don't mean a nice guy, but a good man, a masculine it's strong man. Up. Yeah, so it, it it's it is unfortunately an epidemic. Uh, which yep. to me is, is far more dangerous than this uh, so-called pandemic ever could be. And especially younger men who are under the age of 40 are, are especially lost. And I'll tell you what watching that Gerber knife ad did for me is it got me interested mm-hmm. in owning and buying knives. And I think if the knife industry went after these folks with some very powerful messaging, because inside every man's uh, heart is the desire to be that masculine man, and if you speak to that, it will respond. It can't do anything but respond. You're it's the our f-
0: inner Jeremiah Johnson.
1: You got it. Our <laughs> inner Jeremiah Johnson. So I believe that there are literally tens of millions of men that are not currently knife owners and buyers who would become knife owners and buyers with some strong messaging from a couple of companies, but then more. And I think Gerber did a good job with that one ad. I don't think they they took that messaging on uh, in a big way beyond that, but you know, Gerber is one of the bigger knife companies. I really believe yep. that if that messaging became the messaging of you know, Emerson of Medford mm-hmm. knives and other companies, that messaging would find you people that It'd you're resonate. currently not, re- not reaching. It would resonate with them. And then, so that's number one. And I, and I'd love to somehow be a part of that. I mean, that's one thing that I, I, I want to make a difference from men. I'm part of a men's group here and, and, mm-hmm. and I also love knives. So, so I'd love to okay. find a way to be a part of that. Um, and I'm, and I got a pretty good business mind. So I'd love to find a way to do that. The second thing is, we're living in a time where because of that trend and that men aren't as clear about their role and a lot of men are not in touch with their masculine power, women are being forced to step up and be more masculine, right? And they're being yes, forced to take on some some roles and uh, do some things that in the past maybe they wouldn't have or not to the same extent. And um, I believe that If there are knife companies out there that can start to appeal to women with a good message and an aesthetic that's pleasing to women, because women aren't going to be as into the, you know, the hard use kind of motif as men are. That company is going to sell so many knives, it will not be able to make enough of them fast enough. And they need to be made in the USA. They can't be made overseas. They have to be made here. And they have to be designed by somebody who understands how women think and who understands kind of their aesthetic principle. But that's my belief. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, it's interesting because the thing about knives is as opposed to guns, Guns are a very polarizing subject. Uh, you know, people fall on either side. There's not a lot of people like, oh, I don't care one way or the other. But the thing about knives, because knives are man's oldest tool, or actually maybe a hard a rock or a sharpened stick might have been number one and number two, <laughs> but knives were right behind it. But everyone uses knives. Every woman has knives in the kitchen, or or every man has knives in the kitchen, for that matter. We all I'm telling you right now, you can go to the a high-powered uh, Goldman Sachs uh, board meeting, and if you said, anybody in here who's got a knife in their pocket, please raise your hand. And even though they were wearing two and $3,000 suits, there'd be guys in there that had little Swiss Army knives. You'd see some hands being raised. So, uh, And you know that every, every hunter, every fisherman, every police officer, every military guy, all of those guys have knives. But but it doesn't polarize people. It's a universal tool that rides both sides of the fence equally as well. And so, yeah, there is a good opportunity to provide a product that those people are already searching for. Maybe they might not know it, but if you can get them to identify with the idea behind the product, uh, I think you're right. I think you're spot on. Uh, and the knives are a perfect way to do it because again, if I, if we made guns, you and I probably couldn't have that same exact, we couldn't have that conversation because yeah, you know, be half the population's trying to ban them. But with knives, not so much. Although I must say this, if, if they ban guns in any way, shape or form or restrict them severely, knives are always just one or two steps behind, uh, as you know what's happened in, in England and all that over the last few years. Uh, no, no question about it. No question about it. But I think you're 100% right. Uh, everybody likes a good tool. I mean, for gosh sakes, a cook is as concerned about the steel and the edge geometry and the ergonomics of their knife as a Navy SEAL is or a Delta Force operator. You know what I'm saying? They are equally uh, They're equally important in both of those completely – uh, divergent, you know, fields of use, if you will. So, yeah, I, and by the way, there's a lot of really crappy chef's knives out there. Let me just they say sure that. They sure
1: are. They sure are. Let me tell you, they sure are. You know, no
0: disrespect intended, but God awful.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no question. I'm, um, I've so many away, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> I have uh, I have not got a ton of good kitchen knives. That's the next area that I got to upgrade for sure. I got some decent steak knives, uh, Mm -hmm. but uh, even those, I think I can get better ones. Um, So uh, that's the next area I'm gonna I'm gonna turn my attention to
0: in the cutlery world: (laughs) some good kitchen and steak knives. There are some good ones, no question. Again, you know, it's I always looked at you know not to try and push this in any direction, but. A knife is a knife, and if you're cutting steak or onions or whatever, it, the the ergonomics, the feel, the, the I guess, design aspects of the knife, they're not a lot different than a than a, a combat knife or a tactical knife. They, it still has to cover all of those same exact parameters. It's just that the shape and maybe the size of a kitchen knife or a chef's knife uh, might be a little different. But uh, aside from that, the, the a good combat knife is probably would be a very good chef's knife if it was given a chef's blade. Let's just say that. No, no, that's true. Well said. Absolutely well said. Awesome, uh, Ernie.
1: I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'd love to oh. have you back. I hope you will come back. Um, I love the conversation. It was very cool. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Heck, maybe when you get your your show started up again, you can bring me on. I'd love that too. Hell yeah, we'll it, do that. It'd be fun. It'd be this fun. This excellent. It'd be fun. So that's
0: one thing my wife says that you know what? You you never realized your best uh talent <laughs> <laughs> she said <"It's... laughs> she well, goes you're full of hot air man you
1: love it. <laughs> I love it man I love it just, just it, trust our trust our woman to cut us down the size bring us down a notch well, when our heads get too big she's
0: the, ground. She's, the she's the one who pulls me back down to earth now tell awesome, you. <laughs> awesome, awesome. my lady too
1: my lady too anyways cool. so listen we like to end off each one of these episodes by asking you as our guest expert for your top three expert action steps. These are just basically your top three pieces of advice that you would recommend my listener take on to improve their life or their business. So what do you say?
0: Well, and this this could be to a knife maker. This could be to a guy who is a teacher. This could be to a guy who's a boxer. This could be to a guy who sits in the boardroom of, of Golden Sachs. Uh, I do have Three main principles, and and really what they are, I briefed a little bit on them earlier, the principle of habits. Recognize it, use it to your advantage. The principle of responsibility, and I mean personal responsibility. If you become personally responsible and truly accept that everything that happens to you is a result of your choices, then you can start to make the right choices, the ones that will put you in the right direction. And then the principle of discipline. If you're not disciplined, you're not going to make it. You have to be disciplined. You have to pick the things that you're doing. And I'm not just saying pick one thing and excel at it. Hell, I'm saying pick three, four, five, six things and excel at all of them. But you have to have the discipline. And once you've got that discipline, you can you can apply your skills, your mindset, your willpower, your resolve to any subject or any skill that you want to learn. And those are the three main principles that I live by, and I believe those are, to whatever degree of success that I enjoy, uh, those are the three cornerstones of uh, of the foundation that I built for my success.
1: I love it. Those are three awesome expert action steps. And so, thank you. No, thank you. Uh, so, listener, I got to tell you, you. Um, You have had an opportunity to get to uh, know the great uh, Ernest Emerson. He makes fantastic knives. I highly recommend that you go check out uh, emersonknives.com for uh, the full lineup of his knives. He also is a fantastic designer of clothing, and he's got some of the best T-shirts, hoodies, and uh, other apparel out there. I bought seven uh, Emerson t-shirts myself, including three for my better half uh, on top of that. And they are spectacular. We wear them all the time. They're just absolutely amazing. So make sure you go there and you take advantage of those. And if you're in Canada, go check out some of the the Emerson Knives dealers online that carry Emerson Knives. Blades Canada is a great place. And there's uh, several other ones as well. But I'm a huge, huge fan. I think everyone should own a knife. And I think everyone should own an Emerson knife. And that, my friend, is what I
0: believe from the bottom of my heart. Well, thank you, Nicky. I truly appreciate it. And everybody here at Emerson Knives appreciates that too. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So, listener,
1: you you may be thinking to yourself, okay, this has been a tour de force interview. You've really enjoyed this. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, Ernie's given us some really good advice. Now, what do I need to do to take action on this advice today? And I'm a believer, like Martin Luther King, in the fierce urgency of now. If you've heard something here that's inspired you, take action on it now. And one piece of advice that I want to give you right now is go to my website, ecircleacademy.com. Smack dab in the middle of the homepage is a button that says watch webinar. And that webinar is... Basically, a blueprint for how to take your own genius, your own expertise that's been God given and bubbling up inside you, and bring it out in a bigger, more powerful way so you get to do what you were meant to do. And and you also get to monetize it and turn it into a great living. And if you're already doing that, but you want to take it to the next level, this webinar will help you do that too. It's free. Bring your notebook, bring a pen, take good notes, take advantage of it. Make sure that you do that. And also, I have a copy of my latest book, The Thought Leader's Journey, which you can buy on Amazon if you want a hard copy, but if you're good with a a Kindle-based copy, you can download that by going to ecircleacademy.com forward slash TLJ book for Thought Leader's Journey ecircleacademy.com forward slash tlj book and you can download that book absolutely free and it's going to give you some inspiration some zest some juice for you to be able to bring into your life into your business to take it to the next level so make sure you take advantage of this ernie thank you so much for being a guest on the show today it was truly an honor and a pleasure to be able to have this conversation with you
0: thank you it's been my pleasure indeed awesome
1: awesome And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's incredible guest, the one and only Ernest Emerson and his phenomenal company and incredible knives and apparel, go to emersonknives.com. All that information will be in the show notes at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com, and you can access it there as well. Until next time, goodbye.